That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore, available on Amazon and everywhere. Welcome back to the Lou Perez Podcast. I'm your host, Lou Perez, and I am very excited to be joined by my next guest. He uh, is is an author. He has his uh, first book, I believe, coming out soon. It's a memoir called Cis White Gay. Please give it up for Ben Appel. And there he is. Hey, Ben. Hey, how are you? Uh, I'm I'm good. I um, I uh, I I have two kids, and uh, one of them, the youngest, we just lost uh, his binky, which is like his pacifier. So I don't I don't think I'm going to sleep tonight. <laughs> but um, are you going to sleep okay? I hope you. I yeah, hope I think so. But is that the only one that you have? You don't have spares. Well, well, that's a, that's the thing. I think. My wife, uh, I think her plan, because it, it, it isn't my plan, is you know you start off with a certain amount, and then as you lose them, then we eventually get to the point where there's only one left, and then that's lost, and mm-hmm. then you know the kid grows up and goes to college mm-hmm. or, or something. <laughs> like that. Um, but yeah, it had to it had to come you know on the night that I'm doing that I'm doing my podcast, him mm-hmm. just, you know, screaming bloody murder. And uh, so that's, you know, so that's, so that's where I am right now. Mm-hmm. So in the basement, hiding out right above my, um, uh, my laundry. So, okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> but thank, <laughs> but thank you. Uh, thank you for being here. So, uh, you know, I think the first thing I, I want to, you know, talk about is like, you, you got a book coming out. So, f- First off, congratulations! Is it is it your first uh, your first book? It is my first book. It oh. should be out next year. I'm working on edits right now. Thank you. Um, it yes, it's it's called cis white gay: the making of a gender heretic. That is the the tentative title right now. Um, so yeah, just working on edits and getting everything finished and polished up for for publication. How did um, how did you feel like? going back and writing a memoir, did you feel, um, how do you feel like going back and, you know, like exploring yourself or remembering, you know, who you were and all that? Is it, was it weird? Did it, did it come naturally? Was it a, was it a, you know, an exercise, a chore at some point? I mean, it's pretty excruciating to be honest. You know, there's really, there's, I mean, I'm so, you know, hashtag blessed and can't believe I have this opportunity, all those things, you know, fill in the, fill in the blanks. Um, but it's an excruciating process. It's not fun at all. It's the least fun thing I've probably ever done. Well, actually, no, I've done a lot of not fun things, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's up there. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's, you know, um, just putting your life and different aspects of it in narrative form. Um, separating yourself or kind of getting enough distance from it to uh, tell a story about your life is, is, is a challenge. But I, this stuff, this stuff isn't, isn't necessarily so difficult for me to write about um, because I've been like a keeping a journal since I was like nine, you know? Um, So yeah, it's kind of like, it's a, it's an old habit. Yeah. Well, I I feel like, uh, that, that's something when I hear that, like, you know, that a grown man kept a journal since nine, I'm so jealous 
because mm. I'm like, damn, I would love to know like what young Lou, uh, Louie, uh, you know, at the time, what was going on in his mind at nine, at 10, you know, all, all the way up through the years. But the closest I ever got to doing anything like that is when I was in high school, I uh, became like a very literate guy or at least, you know, wanted to come off like I read books and stuff. So I had these uh, composition notebooks where I would do like free verse. You know, I wasn't a rapper, so there was no, there was no, there was no raps, uh, rap lyrics in it. But I would go and I would write all this poetry. And uh, a good amount of it was like, you know, like sexual poetry, right? All before, oh. all before I had ever had sex. Okay. So, so you know, going back and reading what, you know, mm-hmm. the high school kid <laughs> thought sex sex was, you know, for mm-hmm. all the, you know, emotions and textures and all that. It's, uh, you know, it's pretty, uh, you know, it's pretty silly. Did you go back like and read your journal from when you were, when you were nine years oh, old? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I started that a f- number of years ago. I just thought, well, let me just unpack these things. And uh, it was like my fourth grade teacher was the one that got me to start keeping a journal. She had us like all journal every day. And then, I just kind of stuck with it. And I'll tell you, so I was this really sweet little gay boy, you know, like just love Jesus. I was raised in a Christian fundamentalist community. I was on fire for the Lord and I was just the sweetest little angel and everybody loved me. So I was like expecting to open up these journals to see this like tome of like these Whitman-esque, you know, musings about life and God and love and, and, and just, you know, like something that would rival like the works of, I don't know, the Dalai Lama or something or Jesus (laughs) himself actually. Right. Although he didn't really write, I guess, but anyway, and I was a little asshole, like a total, it was shocking to me how mean I was about my friends and my classmates. I mean, you know, I was homophobic. I was, I was, I was sexist and it was, it was pretty, it was pretty crazy. Were you able to connect with like the moments of like why you may have been that little asshole? You're like, Oh, this, this makes sense. Or was it, you know, sort of like a little, like kind of bombshell, you know? Well, I guess I'll, I'll tell you, like, I was, like I said, I was raised, I went to like a tiny Christian school and I was raised in this fundamentalist Christian community. So it was, it was essentially a cult. And, um, and then we left that when I was like 12. And after we left that community, I became like OCD, like developing this form of OCD called scrupulosity, where I became obsessed with my moral fiber, like my you know, every time I would commit the smallest mistake or sin, I was convinced that God was going to just punish me and strike me down or strike down my mother or somebody I love. So my way of controlling things was to constantly pray for repentance and, 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 and forgiveness. And so all of my journals after we left the community and I developed that disorder are all like, I love God. And, and I mean, like I, they were just the most like little house on the prairie, you know, like, uh, and, and so going back further, I kind of had assumed that that would be the same tone. And it was just kind of very odd that while I was in that community, I guess, because I was in it and I, and, 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 and if, 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 as long as we were in this cult, this community, I was safe and God loved me and I was okay. 
then I could be sinful. Like I could make mistakes because I would be forgiven because I was, you know, I was, you know, enclosed and, and protected in this little bubble. And then after we left, like I said, that was when, when I went off the deep end. Wow. So, uh, your, your parents, I guess, you know, got involved with, you know, Mm -hmm. this cult, right? Mm -hmm. How do you know how they came to it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, my mom, so it was, it was technically like a covenant community. It's called like, you know, Amy Coney Barrett, the Supreme Court justice. Okay. So she, she belongs to a, she's a member of a covenant community. As far as I know, I mean, this is what I've read about her called people of praise. And that was like a sister covenant community to, to the group that I belong to, which was called the lamb of God. And this was in, in Baltimore area. So it's like everybody lived in the same area like in the same neighborhood they called it the cluster um you know the the male leaders there was like a lead coordinator and then there were like four below him my father was one of the coordinators and then the 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 female leaders were called handmaids like and actual were, actual handmaids so they were called handmaids yeah wow. yeah they didn't wear like red cloaks right. or hats or anything but they wore a lot of like long, like dresses that, you know, like they had made themselves kind of thing and they had long hair and, you know, very like sister wives ish kind of. Um, and, but this was just in a suburban neighborhood outside of Baltimore. And so what brought my, my mom and my dad to it, th- this was when they were engaged to be married. So before we came, my siblings and I came along, my mom had been raised in a Catholic church and really like fire and brimstone. And she had like a lot of religious guilt and she, but she still wanted to be religious and like raise her kids as Christians. So she, you know, found this Bible study, like this worship group that was all these like reformed hippies in the seventies. Like they were coming out of, you know, the drug haze of the sixties and the seventies. And they, they were kind of like on fire for Jesus, you know, like, um, and it was just all about love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. And she was like, this is awesome. This is nothing like what I grew up with. You know, it was all about like, God loves you and forgives you and, and, and just come on into the fold. But then, so she, she and my father joined this, but then uh, it, this community ended up getting linked up with this broader network um, of covenant communities called sword of the spirit. And that was when they became, the leaders really became kind of, indoctrinated with this way of life to form this covenant community and it became very dogmatic very much about men's and women's roles and women were you know the men were were husband masters and the women were really supposed to submit to their husbands and it was very uh kind of stalin-esque like you know everybody would keep tabs on everybody else there were there were people above you that you would kind of you know, seek pastoral counseling from, but also kind of confess to, and they would bring like your secrets to the higher ups and then it would trickle down the other side. It was, it was, um, it was just a lot, a lot of people were really harmed, harmed, um, by it. And it, 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 it eventually disbanded. Did it, uh, did it disband like from the, like the top up, like the sword of the spirit? Uh, like all the way down. No, so so actually, so sort of the spirit. As far as I know, it still goes on. Although the leaders sp- split up, like two, there were two leaders. One of them, I don't know. I think he went like on an apology tour about this 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 the stuff that they had done. As far as I remember, another one was, I think, accused of some kind of sexual impropriety. Um, don't quote me on that. I'm not sure. I think that's what it was. Um, but but uh, 
this community did break away from Sword of the Spirit. And then it kind of disbanded soon after that. People were just really unhappy with the direction that it took. It really kind of wrecked a lot of marriages. Um, and because, uh, you know, suddenly women were being told that, you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was pretty, pretty bonkers. But I remember it very fondly because I was a kid. You know, all my best friends lived in the same neighborhood, like right down the street. We, you know, had this small school and and it was it was a great, a great childhood. It really kind of didn't my life didn't really implode until after we left. I'm glad we left. Um, and it was mainly my mom's decision to leave because of the the turn that it had taken. Um, but uh, yeah. Did your parents split? Was that a mm-hmm. was that what yeah. happened? They they split up. Uh, a year, about a year, a little less than a year after we left. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was wondering. Like, were, it, oh, no, go I was going to say, I was always wondering, like, super religious families. Uh, well, for one, it's very, you know, it's very frowned upon, I guess, in, in Catholicism to get a divorce. I mean, people do it, but, you know, yeah. they, uh, I guess the right way to do it is to get, like, an official annulment or something like that mm-hmm. from, uh, you know, you got to write to your your local bishop or go to the pope, or I don't know how I don't know how that works. My my both of my parents are, you know, uh, technically still living in sin, and I was born in sin because that was their uh, I'm the, that this is their second marriage, and they didn't do it, you know, uh, in the church. But yeah, I always wonder in like super religious, uh, you know, families when the split happens, it's kind of like, you know, you're dealing with also like where the uh, you know future religious teachings of the family like which direction that's going to go and was that mm-hmm. was that an issue was it like or was was your dad like still holding on to you know the remnants of uh you know the, the covenant or whatever not i mean he was he was more like he was like the scholarly type that loved like biblical history and he did become a leader in the community like i said but it was more because he had really great business acumen like he was a a lawyer um and uh, you know, the word that, that the, the original members of the community had for newcomers that were like attractive uh, candidates for leadership that would attract more people was called solid. Like my parents were very solid people because, you know, it, it did attract a lot of wayward souls that, 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 you know, just needed, needed a lot of help. So they kind of really glommed onto my father at the beginning and, and really pushed him into leadership positions from the beginning. And he was the one that really wasn't spiritual. He didn't want, he wasn't into the prayer meetings at all. He wasn't into it. And my mom was like, well, I want to do this. And he's like, all right, well then I'll do it with you. And then there was, it, it became difficult in their marriage because he actually excel, accelerated to leadership position. And she was considered for the role of a handmaid, but then she was told that she wasn't going to be one and that was pretty devastating for her because she felt that she was very like spiritual and devout and he really wasn't um like during prayer time every day she would be you know worshiping and praying in tongues and reading the bible and then she would like go into his office and he would be like paging through sports illustrated you know and she was like you know it just it was it was difficult for them but yeah so after they left my dad was just like all right whatever um you know for the most part, he had some other business ventures going on and, uh, and then, but my mom did want, was the one that initiated the divorce. I'm, I'm just imagining, you know, like the, you know, the original 12 apostles, like Jesus looking around, like, yeah, we got a lot of fishermen. 
uh, we need like a lawyer. We need an accountant. Mm-hmm. Like, can somebody come mm-hmm. through that yeah. you know, just, just understands this stuff? Like, we have a lot of yeah. other problems we need to <laughs> we need to uh, take uh, <laughs> take care of. Uh, yeah. So, so you said your mom, but my, uh, my mom my mom had a lot of guilt about it. I mean, for sure. Like my mom, you know, she's not she. I'm sure she's a Christian still. Um, I mean, she and I are close, and she, I know she believes in God and. She's not very dogmatic, very religious. My dad passed away a few years ago. Um, he oh, wasn't sorry. very religious through through the rest of his life either. Um, but my mom had a lot of guilt. You know, like I remember when I came out to her when I was like 16 or 17 or something. And she was like, I just don't know if this is God's plan for you. But, you know, just like your, your cross to bear is your sexuality. Mine is I divorced your father. You know, like it was always like this, Thanks, this kind mom. of like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it was the best she could do at the time, you know, and now she's like, you know, just a total fat gag, you know? So, <laughs> but you know, she's, she's great. She's great. Yeah. And what, what is it like, you know, being a, you know, a young gay kid, you know, in that environment, you, you talk about reading mm. your memoir and it's very, you know, homophobic and, mm, yeah. and sexist. <laughs> I mean, do you even, I got, again, like I wish that I had kept like journals for myself at that, at that, at that time, like just trying to think of myself as like, you know, a young, you know, a young kid who's discovering that he's attracted, you know, attract, like, I think, uh, uh, one of the, the funny things that happened in my, in my family, uh, I must've been like five or six or something like that. And we were watching uh, TV in our living room and it was, uh, romancing the stone with, uh, Kathleen Turner. Mm-hmm. And, I love that movie. And, and apparently, my brother, my older brother looked over and could tell that I had a boner. I had a little boner <laughs> and they like, and they like, they pointed it, they pointed it out, you know? And it's like, so even at that young age, like I was like, you know, whatever, you know, whatever that is on the screen, that woman, you know, I'm, a, I'm, you know, attracted to it. So, uh, I'm just wondering, you know, did you have like similar things like that? Like, uh, as a, as a young kid? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, for sure. Um, oh gosh. Yeah. L- look, I didn't, oh man, I don't even know if I really want to go there with, but no, yeah, it's like, okay. Um, Whatever you, you know, you know, I, yeah, I, uh, I mean, look, like when we were in this community, like I learned all about Sodom and Gomorrah and homosexuals and AIDS was God's punishment for these evil, evil demons. And, you know, homosexuality was like the worst thing that you could, that you could sing that you could commit. So, you know, it was, it was, as you can imagine, just a total joy to be taken, ripped out of that community, essentially excommunicated and shunned. And I don't get to see my friends anymore. And then at the same time, realizing that, oh, I'm gay. And then being tormented in my new school because I was very, was a really effeminate kid. And then, so it was, it was, it wasn't a fun time. All of those things coincided at the same time. And I realized like, oh fuck, I am, I am a, a gay. I'm, I'm, I'm what, I learned was the epitome of evil and I'm not in that community anymore. I don't have these mentors and these teachers and these friends and these people protecting me and guiding me. I'm in this world. And it was, it was in my new school. I mean, tormented. And so, yes, I was an effeminate kid in my old school, but there wasn't like an in crowd. It was such a tiny school. There were four kids in my grade, including me. So it wasn't like, you know, four kids? I was four, yeah, four, right. One, two, three, four. Wow. Right. So I, uh, you know, didn't know how different I was, um, until it, it was pointed out to me, um, 
by by my new classmates. And and yeah, I mean, so at the time I hadn't really sexually matured yet. I my first crush was when I was like maybe 10 or 11. I went and saw um this this B movie North with Elijah Wood. He was yeah. my age. And, you know that movie. Okay. I know good, that right? movie, yeah. I think classic. You're like the, only one. the classic. And, uh, yeah. It is a classic movie. It's very weird. Like I was like, I I anyway, um, but uh and I just fell in love. I was 11 and I was like, oh my God. But I didn't know what it was at the time. I just was like, just obsessed. I had his pictures on my wall and I, I just loved him. Um, and it was my first crush, but it was like a very, you know, I, I, like I said, I hadn't gone through puberty. And then a few years later I did. And, and, you know, when you're gay, you kind of realize first, like what you're not into. Cause you know, all your peers or most of your peers are interested in, in, in girls. So right. they're passing around sports illustrated magazines. And I'm just like sitting here looking at these images, like studying them, like, you know, this is supposed to do something for me, you know, like, and kind of just faking it, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and like, why does it make me feel nauseous when I kiss a girl, you know? And, um, and then, you know, you, you realize like once you have an experience or, or two with, with someone of the same sex, Oh, that's why. Okay. Right. This is what it's supposed to feel like, you know? Yeah. What, uh, uh, yeah. What was it like, you know, like kissing, kissing girls? Um, I, like, did they, like, did you have girlfriends? Like we, I did the girls who thought like, Oh my God, like I have, like, I have the best boyfriend. His name is, his name <laughs> well, is Ben. We get along so well. He's a very handsome guy. Well, like, that's the thing. Cause I was a sweet kid, you know, like right. girls felt really safe with me. I loved, you know, I loved hanging out with girls. I had two older sisters, you know, and like, so, you know, I had good, fa- I mean, I had good fashion sense. I remember this girl that I, I guess I went out with, or maybe I, I, I don't remember. I got her like an outfit for like Valentine's day and she like loved it. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> it was, it was, they just, you know, like being with me. And I was like, I guess I was a relatively cute kid, you know, I was awkward and whatever, but, um, but, but they felt safe. And so, uh, yeah, I did. I had some girlfriends in seventh, eighth grade and, and, uh, and I, I had to really fight the gay rumors. You know what I mean? Like, I, once kids were like, oh, you're a faggot, are you a boy or a girl, et cetera, I was like, I had to, I, it was a full-time job for me to defeminize myself and like just expunge every remnant of femininity. Like I became a total, just self, a constantly self-scanning for, for them. So I changed the way I walked, I cut my hair, I deepened my voice, I changed the music I listened to. I mean, I really kind of became a shell of a human being in a lot of ways because of, well, in some ways because of, of just as as a survival tactic. And so, and so, yeah, girls liked me and, and, and I, um, I had some girlfriends and I had a girlfriend in high school, but I, I did kind of come out to her, like her and my other best friend, we were like best friends and we would all get high together. And, and I remember saying like, I'm kind of into guys too. And like, you know, there was the soccer player that I was obsessed with on the the high, the, the soccer team, and uh, but then she and I ended up like kind of dating, and then you know, and you know, we would make out and stuff, and um, but I was like, look, this isn't this isn't me. Like, I I I think I'm 
I'm more into, I couldn't say the words gay at the time, but this was like when I was 16 or 17, maybe. But I said, you know, I think I'm leaning towards the other way. Um, yeah. And, and it's such a, and it's such a different time too. I mean, we're, we're, I think around the uh, same age, I'm, I'm 41. I think uh, you just yep. turned 40. Or was that? A- I did. Yeah. Uh, happy. Uh, I think that when we first met in person, you had just, uh, uh, turn 40 and uh mm-hmm. you know uh, like you know looking back it's like it really is so different now i think for uh, you know for gay kids than it was you know in the in the 90s you mm-hmm. know like i, uh, I went to a, a catholic high school and there were a couple of a couple of guys who you know everyone knew was you know were gay and but you didn't th- you know it, I, I don't know like what they went through, you know, specifically when it came to like, you know, bullying and stuff like that, but the whole culture of like of dating and stuff, like they weren't dating each other. We'd have no idea. Like they weren't obviously dating girls. So it's like, you, you know, you think like, what, what was that social life like, you know, cause it was so, they, they were, they, they were sort of uh, kept out of the norm of you go mm-hmm. and you get a girlfriend or, you, you know, um, Whereas I now I feel like the kids seem to be a lot more you know open and like mm-hmm. or maybe I'm wrong I don't you know I don't I don't know kids anymore thank you know thank mm-hmm. God so. yeah I I don't know I I mean it's a mess right now it's a mess <laughs> it's a it's a mess for kids I I I, I worry that the kids are not okay the kids are yeah why don't we yeah maybe, maybe we can we can talk about that because uh, for one at at some point uh, in uh, in time. Uh, you became, you know, just cis, white, and gay, mm-hmm. um, and which I think is basically like you're basically a straight white man. Essentially, <laughs> I mean, essentially, that's uh, the, you know, that's what you are. So, uh, why don't we, you know, talk about that a little bit? How, how, yeah. how did that happen? Who made you that? Who made you cis, white, and gay? Well, I, you know, I'll tell you, like I and I and I write about this in the in the book, and that's kind of why it's called like the making of a, of a gender heretic, just because I, I, you know, I had worked, I had volunteered for like the Maryland the marriage equality campaign in Maryland um, back in 2012, you know, and uh, I had met my now husband, and I, you know. I got involved in activism. And after we won that initiative, I, I worked on some like volunteered for trans rights legislation campaign. And I just became like on fire for, for a social, it was like a new, a new mission for me in a way, I guess maybe it had kind of like the, there was like a, a religious element to it. You know, I had, I, um, you know, I was in my late twenties and um, it, it, it felt great to feel like I'm on the right side of history and I'm going to make a difference and save people. And, and, and it was, it was actually, it was also very esteem building, you know, when we won the marriage equality initiative because it was voted on at the ballot box. Um, I couldn't believe that the majority of people in my state who voted thought that I should have the right to marry like because I was so convinced we were going to lose you know like you know we're never going to have a happily ever after etc and we we won that initiative and so it really kind of was pretty transformative for me I thought wow there's like a lot of stuff is possible here and uh, I really loved my like my now husband like I said and I just really wanted to marry him and um, so after that campaign, I was just very much like, I want to do more with my life. At the time I was a hairstylist in, in the Baltimore DC area. My, my 
college career had gotten derailed by drugs and alcohol. I, I was really heavy into drugs and alcohol and I had a lot because all of that stuff that I talked about earlier just continued to compound. And I, I really self-medicated with, with drugs and alcohol and I got into some, some really heavy stuff and I had a lot of psych ward stays and whatnot. But then in my early twenties, I did get sober. And so I, you know, I developed this career and then in my late twenties, no early thirties, um, I want to do more with my life. I want to go back to school, get my degree, be a writer, be a journalist, be an LGBTQ activist and all this stuff. And so I did, I, I went back to school part-time and then I, I applied to Columbia. And um, so that's what brought my husband and I up to New York because um, they have a program for non-traditional students. It's like, um, it's called the School of General Studies and all of the students, you need like at least a year of, of time off in your college career, which I had had many years off. Real life, um, you need like yeah. a year of yes. real life. Yeah. Yes. And, um, and so it, 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 this, this, and everybody matriculates in. So you're just a part of the Columbia community. And so there's like people that are older than you in your classes and younger and all that stuff. And, um, it was a great experience. I was there for three and a half years. I graduated, um, in May, 2020, I, I studied, you know, I was, my major was nonfiction creative writing there. Cause I, you know, plan to just be a writer and, and essentially do what I'm doing, but not, I, I did not at all plan to be a heretic the way that I am. I was, I was like, I was on fire. I was, I was woke next level woke. Like my go-to news source was like Huff Post, you know, like I would write angry diatribes on Facebook about these evil Republicans and all this stuff. And, you know, um, but, but really I just became completely disillusioned by the culture on the campus that I, that I found there. I couldn't, you know, my first semester began the week that Trump was inaugurated. So I was devastated by Trump's win at, win at the time. I was, you know, not excited about that and but i just thought i'm just going to immerse myself in this in this school and learn and educate myself and be like just the best activist and writer i can be and then i realized that there was just this 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 culture of 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 censorship and and purity policing and virtue it was it it so closely brought me back to the community religious community that i had grown up in and there were so many parallels and and like i said earlier that kind of ocd of scrupulosity of of constantly thinking that i'm bad and wanting to repent um i had a re kind of resurgence of that that disorder was a yeah, because everybody was policing everyone's speech and you just never knew if you were going to slip up or say the wrong thing and um i i had been you know and suddenly I just, I was, I was reduced entirely to my, to my identity. I was this, you know, fairly masculine presenting, um, you know, homosexuality, gay, gayness, it didn't, it was irrelevant. It was all about gender essentially. And so I wasn't queer. I was just the cis white gay. And I, and I was a fashion, I was an assimilationist, you know, I had married and I was, you know, uh, <laughs> I wasn't adequately anti-capitalist and all of these things. I mean, it's did just, you, did you wear khakis like khaki pants? Is it, I think that's, I did. That's, I did. Yeah. Some, I sometimes work. I wore shorts and has mostly jeans, mostly jeans, mostly jeans. Um, you know, and I, I, it was, it was very, very like just, just illusion. I, I did not know what was happening. I was, I was floored by, by what was going on and by, by my, my response to it, because I'm, in my thirties and I'm a critical thinker and I'm 
and feeling like this doesn't seem, you know, like your anti-racism is actually kind of racist, you know, like there was just, and you're like, it, it, everything seemed so regressive suddenly. And, uh, and then of course, gender stuff, I, you know, I just saw what was going on with kids and, 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 and looking back on my, my past and my, my childhood and knowing how effeminate I was and kids literally saying, are you a boy or a girl? And me thinking like at the time I wanted to be a girl, I felt like, you know, I, I, I was more comfortable with girls. And if I had grown up now, and if I had gone to some guidance council and they said, well, maybe the bullies are right. Maybe you're a girl. I mean, who knows if I would have, um, glommed onto that because I had such religious guilt about my sexuality too. So I thought, well, if this is a medical thing that I can, I, I might thought have thought, I can fix it. You know, I can be cured. I can, um, I can just, I can, I can be a girl and I would just be, um, so I, I really became concerned and I kind of went down the rabbit hole of like, what, what is trans medicine? Where did this start? Where did hormones come from? Why, you know, and, and just really looking at what are the demographics that are being treated? And, you know, there's, there's a really shifting demographic, but a lot of these kids historically have been, have been gay, same sex attracted and, and, uh, and, and there just isn't, isn't room for a lot of gender nonconformity in society. And so we're, we're in a lot of cases, medicalizing gender nonconformity and we're medicalizing kids who would otherwise grow up to be gay. Yeah. And, and um, I definitely want to, you know, talk more about that. I just want to go back to, you know, there's something, I think there, there's something about, uh, people who you know, like yourself who are in recovery, you know, do you still call yourself like in recovery from, you know, like drugs and alcohol? Is that how you refer yeah. to it? Or, yeah, I do. Because uh, I think, I think there, there's like a, in my experience, like talking with people, there's like a humility and also a willingness to talk about dark, fucked up things that mm-hmm. either they've done or have happened to them in the past. So mm-hmm. I think from the standpoint of like, of a writer, especially writing a memoir, you know, mm-hmm. it's sort of like at the beginning, I asked you like, oh, is it difficult to write? And it's sort of like, well, you're kind of like the perfect person to write your memoir, not just because it's your mm-hmm. memoir, but also because you, you know, you sort of have been gifted, if, if you want to call it that, you know, this, you know, this ability to take on that stuff that that a lot of people would just rather just put away completely. You're you know? very, you're right about that. Yeah, like it, it, it is a. I agree. Uh, it, 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 it has definitely prepared me to, cause I've had to, you know, to be sober and to stay sober, you have to really examine these things. Otherwise you're, you're, if you don't deal with them, you're going to drink about it and use and you, and you can't. So you, you have to do the work to, um, to really confront a lot of those demons from your past and, and, and face it head on. Yeah. And I, with, uh, with the program you, d- you talk about it uh columbia i mean it sounds like it, it sounds like a great program it reminds me of um i got my mfa at uh, city college city college in new mm-hmm. york mm-hmm. and well it was a similar thing what was cool about that program is you know you would look around and you'd have people who are 50 years old you'd have people in their 30s 40s people mm-hmm. going to school part-time who had lived a good chunk of life now when i got in i didn't i had actually lived that much of life you know i was like I think I was like 25 or something like that when I uh, uh, when I when I went in. I was doing uh, comedy, uh, uh, sketch and improv comedy. 
Um, but you know, sitting around with people who've actually, they weren't just, they weren't, you know, kids, they weren't, you know, like 19 year old kids, uh, I think was a really, uh, was, I think that was really important for me, for my development, I guess, is, you know, writing and, and whatnot. When did you do that? What year? Uh, what year did I get out? I think I graduated 2008 or 2009. Um, and you just, you were just ahead of the, of the implosion of the, the nightmare that MFA programs had become. Uh, did you do a fiction? Yeah. Yeah. I did uh yeah. create, yeah. Creative writing. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. So it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe you could talk about the implosion because what you, what you just described, I'm like, Oh wow, that sounds like a really cool program. But then there's all Look, this it's stuff a great working, opportunity. You know? I mean, it was a great opportunity. Like I, I couldn't believe my luck. I still can't believe my luck. I mean, I, I was this, you know, I got to go and study at one of the best universities in the in the world, you know, and I got a great education. Um, and you know, um, but universities are just hotbeds for this, this gross kind of regressive indoctrination with, and not to sound like all conspiratorial, but I mean, it's just, you know, just these critical theories and postmodernism and queer theory, you know, the, so much of what's taught is through the lens of these, these distorted, these, these theories that distort um, and that deny truth and shared reality. And it's really not good. Uh, and so I had to do a lot of extra work to round out my education um, so as I wasn't receiving everything through this kind of distorted lens, I really had to do to do the extra work. So it was a great experience, but you know, kids, you know, because there's this air of of self censorship and and fear, um, you know, you're you're you become kids become they become very afraid to speak honestly and say what they think, and then suddenly everybody starts sounding the same and speaking the same and saying the same stuff. Look like universities are essentially like a Twitter feed. Like, uh, uh, I mean, they really are there. It's just social media is an extension of the university campus and vice versa. And I can't stress that enough. And so, you know, I did do an MFA program. I was so lucky to be accepted, you know, to this, this great MFA program after I graduated from Columbia and I lasted a semester in it before I wrote something, you know, problematic that that on a on my private Substack that I put behind a paywall um, called the New Homophobia in Higher Education, and I used pseudonyms and I just wrote about some of this stuff. And uh, someone in the program saw it and took screenshots of the problematic parts and passed it around the program. And DEI got involved and workshops were canceled and and I just I left I fled this it, it, was the beginning of my second semester and I was like get me the hell I am losing brain cells this is this is killing my intellect my creativity everybody was just it was like a I, I the only way I could compare these seminars and these classes to was like a church youth group like it was a it was a just a toxic um a toxic gross diminishing atmosphere um and so i had to i i got the fuck out of there what where, where was the mfa program that you were oh wash U, washington university in st louis oh wow and mm -hmm. um 
so the the new homophobia like uh what, what you know, yeah how's it, i mean how's it, was, how's it different from the old one you know how, yeah how, how have they updated it uh, you know the so new flavors? so so there's this what it really was was you know look like so many people everybody's queer now you know and that the 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 rainbow alphabet is just expanded to include everybody essentially but like you know you you know like everybody but but strictly well i don't know what you're what no no but it, no but it actually it actually seems like, like there's a lot of people who describe themselves as queer and then you're like right. well who are you dating and it's like oh you're right. just you're just straight but you're just, you're straight. just but you're just right. calling yourself queer yeah and so there's there's a lot of what queer is is not like it so it doesn't even have so much to do with sexuality it has to do with the politics it has to do with being properly anti-racist in this in the new definition the kind of kendyism definition of anti-racism be anti-capitalist um uh be you know anti-heteronormativity anti-cis heteronormativity you know, all of these things and it, it's a politics. And so what happens is, is that this, this radical queer movement has attracted a lot of just f- boring ass straight, not boring ass, like, but, you know, just run of the mill straight people that want a kind of queer identity and want to look, I mean, we live in a, this internet intersectional society where victimhood is like cult, capital now i mean it's cultural cachet and it's it's actual capital i mean people are you know uh autumn so for folks that are straight and white i mean what can they do they can't pose as black unless they're like you know rachel dolezal or get really creative with it they gotta be queer and they gotta be non-binary and they gotta and so uh, this this community opened up and and then suddenly all these people came flooding in and and it became it gave so many people this this excuse to just be blatantly homophobic about cis gays and how you know uh we're this and that because they're like oh i'm in your community i'm one of you you know like i'm 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 i can i can critique and i can you know call my own people fag and this that it was it was just it gave so many people an excuse to just be to express this and look, growing up, you can you know homophobia when when you see it. Right. You know what I mean? Like you know what it is, and you and you you can sense it, and you can smell it, and you can feel it, and and uh, and it gave a lot of people just an excuse to do that. And so also in that in that same way, there was this 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 these attitudes about there was only one way to be gay, and it was to be queer. It was to be, um, you know to to fight for to be a part of society you know to fight for marriage to fight for you know to be it it was you're this assimilationist fascist bootlicker and 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 really what you should what i should be a part of is besides wearing the uniform which is you know shaving half my head and growing out the other side and wearing eyeliner and and nail polish and having different pronouns um, and possibly medicalizing and taking estrogen because that's, you know, um, I, I should, my goal should be to just raise Western institutions, just tear it all down to build, to build this queer, you know, u- socialist utopia and anything short of that. And anything, um, that when, if you're not in line, you're, you're either a centrist scum or you're a, a fascist bootlicker and, and that's, and that's it. Yeah. 
And it's so it, it it's so odd. In, in my book, um, I have a chapter. But the thing is, is that and I'll just say really quickly. Yeah, yeah. Go. Like the thing is, is that so many gay people have fought very, very hard for acceptance, and they've put together organizations and and fought for these things, and and so these new queers are degrading and setting us back is really alarming because we're caught in the undertow of it. You know, we're going to absolutely, but I knew this from the very beginning when I started seeing these things go on, it's like, who's going to be blamed for this? It's going to be gays, you know? Um, and, and, you know, so it's just, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of hatred towards, towards the, the old gay guard, you know? Who, who made a lot of uh, uh, a lot of progress? Anyway, go ahead. You were saying oh, in your book. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, so I have a chapter. It's a uh, I am become death. Uh, and it's not about the uh, you know the atomic bomb. It's it's about uh, voting third party um, mm -hmm. and how I was blamed for obviously Donald Trump you know getting into office because I voted third party in, right. in New York in New York. That oh totally my won. god, yeah, uh, you know. Um, but uh, I was accused of being responsible for the deaths of trans people because I voted, you know, in such a way that allowed Donald Trump to get into office. So it was like, you know, 6,000 degrees of separation between, you yeah. know, my vote and having, you know, you know, the, the blood of, you know, trans people on my hands. And wow. what I found, what I found interesting was that the person accusing me of doing it uh, was a gay man in his uh, late fifties and sixties. And what I found, well, you know, what I found funny about it is like, you know, I, I knew gay men of his generation and it's like mm -hmm. gay men of his generation. They are attracted to men. They love men. They don't love biological women mm -hmm. who are trans men. And, mm -hmm. you know, my response to that is something along the lines of, well, wait a minute, how many, are, if I'm responsible for deaths for voting, how are you, you know, how many are you responsible for by not including, you know, these little petite, uh, uh, how do I call it? Uh, um, uh, Tom of, uh, you know, Tom of Finland's, you know, in your, uh, in your world, you know, a little five foot one, uh, you know, butchy, uh, you know, little, uh, you know, little girl that would have been a gymnast, but no, she's a, she's a man now. And it just got me, it, you know, you're talking about, you know, this stuff, it just got me thinking of, you know, th there were men, there were, you know, gay spaces for gay men to get together, to, to hook up, to have, you know, your culture. And I don't know which one, who was the first to invade it. Was it like fucking bachelorette parties who like, Oh, we got to go party at the gay bars and stuff. But it's like there's like a complete lack of respect and boundaries for no like like let these let these men have their space and hook up as they want and because they fought so fucking hard to get that you know mm -hmm. it's my little my little rant on on that yeah well I mean look like uh, you know if you you know are you familiar with the Trevor project yeah yeah I actually uh, years ago I I actually. How many years ago? I, I think I gave like twenty bucks to it, something like that. Okay, no. so it was yeah. I mean, it was a great organization helping young people. You know, fighting uh, you know suicide rates or depression and helping people. 
but they they now they now on their website they define gay as an identity term for this is on Trevor. So this is this is on Trevor Project's website, which is for youth, okay? You know, an identity term for someone who experiences same gender attraction and sometimes refers to someone who only experiences same gender attraction. Commonly used to describe people who identify as men or masculine of center who are attracted to some other men. Okay. Okay. What the fuck is that? Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's essentially, I, I just worry. So I would never in a million years send some kid that's, that's struggling with his sexuality to, you know, to an organism like that, where they're, they're confusing the hell out of them. And also, I mean, you know, homosexuality is same sex attraction. Now, this topic drives me crazy because that does not mean that there are not gay men or gay identified men, males out there who would or have slept with trans men, meaning trans identified females who are very masculine. I know that that happens. Okay. Those people are bisexual. All right. Right. You know, um, and I don't like the kind of cruelty that kind of comes along with this discourse a lot, you know, where like a lot of people say, oh, I would, you know, never have sex with you. You're, you know, you're disgusting. And I, I don't see that a lot, but I, I don't think this is discourse about this, but I think that there is nothing wrong with, you know, the new link, the new lingo is, you, you know, this, this idea of calling gay people you know, genital fetishists, um, for, for wanting to, to have strictly same sex partners, um, which is just, it's just that, that just all of these things, um, it it is, they're, they're all remnants of the kind of conversion therapy and, and, um, it, it, it really is conversion 2.0 for, for gay kids and for gay people, um, to kind of, demand that they really look at their themselves and really go deep and see why they would refuse a a trans woman with a penis if they're a lesbian um you know because some women do have penises and and they really and it's just it's it's like the, the discourse is disgusting you know the discourse is just gross you know these trans activists and and other activists that that put out these oh genital fetishists and oh you know, same gender attraction. They do not speak for the entire trans community by any stretch of the imagination. They don't speak for gays and lesbians either. But the sad reality is, is that these organizations that were founded by gay and lesbian people have been completely captured by by this kind of queer theory slash radical trans theory oriented approach to to advocacy and activism. And it's it's harming a lot of people. And it's and, and a lot of gays and lesbians feel just completely left out, left out in the wild. Yeah, some of it 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 seems like uh, almost seems like um, they're try, trying to trying to see like what they can get away with because when I hear something like you know the cotton ceiling breaking through mm-hmm. the cotton ceiling, meaning mm-hmm. you know like trans women 
trying to shame lesbians into into having sex with them right i'm like you got to be fucking like 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 you got to be kidding me it sounds like it sounds like such a like a straight guy move like a bro move to try to be like what like yo you're a bigot if you don't want to if you don't want to sleep with me you know and then there are like lesbians who are actually having like really um you know heart to heart uh, you know, conversations about this thing. Like, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to exclude you. I don't want you to think that, you know, I'm a bad person and all that. And it's like, it's your body. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it, you're, a, you're, you're gay. Like, like no one could force you to have sex with somebody that you don't want to have sex with or you're not attracted to. It's, it's fucking, it's, it's mind blowing. Really. It's mind-blowing. it's mind blowing. But you know, that's really just like the abolition of sex that, that is underway or that, that people are, are, uh, attempting now the 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 consequences are kind of endless um when it comes to medicine and health and healthcare and relationships and and everything um it's there there's a reason why um why we have to acknowledge sex differences and why it's important many reasons a million reasons yeah yeah, and, and you know, you talking about you know being you know like a young kid, uh, you know, effeminate, and it's like mm-hmm. uh, the young kids, you know, who you know were just like you at at your age. Now they're being told, uh, well, you know, you might actually be a girl, mm-hmm. which it, um, it you you were on uh, when I when I first heard you were on Andrew Sullivan's uh, podcast mm-hmm. uh, with the uh, Dishcast, I think it is which mm-hmm. was great. And uh, it was such a great episode. And Andrew has told this story a couple, a couple of times, uh, at least that, that I've heard uh, on his podcast about, you know, being a young boy in England in a, you know, a devout Catholic family. And I believe it was his grandmother saying something like in regards to him and his brother, it's like, well, at least you have one real boy, something like that. Uh, mm. uh, and Andrew's father to his great, I get, I get a little choked up when I, you know, think about it saying, no, he's 100% a boy, you know? And it's like how important that was for Andrew to hear that. Then how, and how many young boys don't hear that, you know, from, from their, their parents. And now, you know, you think about that's back, you know, Andrew's probably like, you know, in his fifties and now, you know, cut to 2023. And now, you know, you have an effeminate boy who, Hey, he might not be into rugby or football or roughhousing. He might, you know, and saying like, Oh, well, and we, we have to fix him. You know, we have to make him her. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's, it's really, really, um, hard to stomach. So it is hard to stomach. And I mean, look, yeah, it is hard to stomach anyway. I mean, it, look, puberty blockers and all this stuff, I, you know, stunting, stunting children's developmental and physical development. Um, you know, to supposedly give them time to think, to figure out their gender identity. It's just, to me, it's a, it's a, it's a crime against humanity. It really is. Oops. I lost you for a sec. I, I can't hear you. Sorry. I, I muted myself. Uh, there we go. I, I, I was probably about to say something stupid. So thankfully I muted myself. Um, you know, before, before we get going, like, I'm, I'm so excited for you, especially with the, the book coming out. I know you still have a lot, a lot more work to do on it, you know, cause you know, it's the whole, uh, editing stage. Um, something I want, wanted to talk about, uh, 
I, I get excited every time I hear somebody uh, was a hairstylist. Uh, used, mm-hmm. to, used to cut hair. This is going to sound weird. My dad's a butcher, right? Mm-hmm. A butcher by trade. And there's so okay. few butchers. Like, so when you meet a butcher, like, oh, wow, you meet a butcher. I don't meet a lot of people who cut hair or, or have mm-hmm. cut hair. So in a, in a way, I'm, I'm, I'm like, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. How, how long did you cut hair for? <laughs> for 13, 13 years. 13 years. So, yeah. So I, I really fell into it. It was like I was fresh out of the psych ward. I had just gotten kicked out of my mom's house. I was drunk. Um, and I ran into a friend from high school at the grocery store and she said, what are you doing with your life? And I said, Oh, I'm thriving. And she was like, well, you know, you can come do this apprenticeship, um, cosmetology. And I was like, all right. And so maybe the next day or two days later, who knows when, um, she picked me up and, and took me in and I, and I, and and about three months later I got sober. Um, but I barely held on to this job, you know, but yeah, I, I did a two year apprenticeship under this, this little, this woman and, in, uh, in, in outside of Baltimore, um, she was this Thai woman who was like literally like four, eight. And I was like, you know, six, two, and we would like do blowouts together, like, you know, on the same, <laughs> you know, she would be like standing on a stool and, and I, and I, and I started doing a root color touch-ups and shampooing and all this stuff. And then I learned and I, and I kind of had a knack for it because I was always a really creative person. And, 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 you know, meanwhile, like I said, I was getting my life together personally, getting sober and recovering. So this, this career kind of just coincided with that. Um, and then it, it became a really lucrative, really lucrative, successful career, but I just didn't, I didn't want to do it forever. I got, I got really burnt out and, um, you know, but I did it for a long time. Well, the the way that you describe how you got into it, it sounds like, you know, you're like, just got out of recovery. I was drunk. I signed up for the army. I enlisted in the Marines. You know, that, that's, <laughs> exactly. that's kind of like, it could have, it could have easily have gone that way. It's like, yeah, man, then I'm, you know, here I am in friggin', you know, Kabul, you know, uh, shooting at people. Right? Could have easily. What if I had run way. into a friend that day that had just enlisted and was like a recruiter? Right. I, I could have gone in a completely different direction. Yeah. Yeah, I would be, I would be jacked, very <laughs> traumatized. A lot, a lot of PTSD. You know, like the uniform looks great, but nobody yeah. talks about the PTSD under the uniform. That's, yeah, uh, yeah. That's, uh, that's, uh, I, uh, I, I always think of my my mother was uh, was a beautician, um, mm-hmm. and um, uh, early on uh, at 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 her salon, everyone there who worked there and owned it were all gay Puerto Rican guys. Um, and, uh, I often think about like that generation because they, they're all gone from, and they got, they went early from, you know, AIDS. Um, and the funniest fucking guys, like, Mm -hmm. like, uh, funniest dudes. Uh, they were so good to my mother. I just have nothing Mm -hmm. but, you know, just, just wonderful, uh, uh, you know, memories of them and they cut hair, man. They mm-hmm. So, you know, somewhere in my heart, all the hairstylists. <laughs> oh, I love that. Where did you grow up? Uh, Queens. Yeah. Queens, oh, okay. New York. yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, uh, Ben, thank you so much uh, for joining me. And um, I, uh, you have a sub stack where, where can people check out? Check out yeah. So I'm on Twitter. It's just Ben Appel, B-E-N-A-P-P-E-L um, is my handle. Um, and then I do have a Substack that 
I do contribute to, although I'm a little behind right now because of the book, but my book should be out next year, Cis White Gay. But yeah, you can find me, the links are on Twitter um, and, and stuff like that. So Awesome. We're gonna Thanks, Lou. <laughs>